0: Hello, this is episode 13 of the Hate Crime File, a podcast about crimes typically involving violence motivated by prejudice based on race, religion, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or other grounds. I'm your host, Terrence E. This podcast covers disturbing events and may not be suitable for everyone. It is not recommended for young children. Listener discretion is advised. There have probably been hate crimes for as long as there have been human beings. They haven't always been called hate crimes. From the late 1870s, following the end of the post-Civil War construction period, through 1950, Lynchings were widely practiced throughout the American South as a means of social and racial control to terrorize African Americans into submission. At least 4,742 people were reported lynched in the U.S. between 1882 and 1968. The Tuskegee Institute records the lynchings of 3,000 four hundred thirty-six black Americans between 1882 and 1950. The Equal Justice Initiative relied on the Tuskegee numbers to build its own count. It included newspaper archives and other historical records to arrive at a total of 4,084 racial terror lynchings in twelve southern states between 1877 And 1950, and 300 in other states, according to EJI, of all the lynchings after 1900, only one percent resulted in a lynching participant
1: being convicted of a criminal offense of any kind. The typical lynching often started with dubious
0: criminal accusations against a black person, usually a black man. Following a manhunt or an arrest, a mob assembled to subvert the normal judicial process. Victims were seized and subjected to all manner of torture and physical torment before finally being hanged and or shot and set ablaze. Often the bodies of victims were dismembered and members of the mob would take home bones, and body parts as souvenirs. Lynchings became public events with hundreds and even thousands of white individuals and families gathered to witness the torture and extrajudicial killing of the victim or victims. Collector James Allen uncovered the visual legacy of these events in photographs and postcards taken and sold as souvenirs of lynchings throughout the country, and published many of those images
1: in a book titled Without Sanctuary. The most common accusation that started most
0: lynchings was the rape or sexual assault of a white woman by a black man. Regardless of the lack of evidence or facts supporting the charges, White mobs seized accused blacks or attacked entire black communities as revenge for alleged crimes. According to the Equal Justice Initiative, nearly 25% of all lynching victims were accused of sexual assault. Why did rape accusations or the threat of race mixing lead to so many extrajudicial executions? The answer lies at the intersection of patriarchy and white supremacy. The South's social fabric was torn asunder by the Civil War. White men, at least for a period between the end of the war and the end of Reconstruction, were no longer the unquestioned masters of the region. The threat of race mixing coupled with the reality of socioeconomic competition with formerly enslaved blacks struck fear into the hearts of many. Lynching by the end of the 19th century became the most effective expression of white male dominance. Its success depended upon a pair of racist,
1: sexist tropes, the black male brute and the fairer sex. Black men were and still are subject to violence because they are seen
0: as brutish, savage, and dangerous. Michael Brown's killer, after all, described him as a grunting, aggressive, quote, demon.
1: They were and are seen as so dangerous they're practically inhuman. The black
0: brute stereotype served dual purposes. It was used as an explanation for why black people needed to be kept in slavery. It also provided an effective means of justifying white control by perpetuating the idea that black men uncontrollably preyed on white women. Black men and men of color as
1: savage brutes who want to steal and sully the possessions of white men, namely white women. White men saw themselves as the main line of defense protecting white
0: womanhood and, with it, their societal power. It's a concept that still holds its power to inspire violence. Charleston shooter Dylan Roof was heard to say, I have to do it. You rape our women and you're taking over our country and you have to go. Before he committed a horrific act of domestic terrorism against black men and women. He used the protection of white women and their sexuality to justify it. James Jackson, whose murder of a black man named Timothy Kaufman we covered in episode 11, traveled from Baltimore, Maryland to New York City seeking to murder black men he found in the company of white women. His goal was to discourage white
1: women from entering into interracial relationships. The black brute trope was
0: particularly useful in large part because of the way white female sexuality has been historically viewed and positioned. Sexual access to women is a trophy of power, Dr. Lisa Lindquist, associate professor at the University of Alabama, told the Huffington Post. White women embodied virtue and morality. They signified whiteness and white superiority, so access to white women was possessing the ultimate
1: privilege that white men held. It also makes women trophies to be traded among men. Juxtaposed against the trope of the fairer sex, the black brute stereotype gained even more power. In her book, The Fair Sex, White Women and Racial Patriarchy in the Early American Republic,
0: Pauline Schlosser traces some historical ideas about white womanhood. She explains that the concept of the fair sex directly tied white womanhood to domesticity and sexual purity. These ideas emerged even more in the 19th century with the myth of the cult of true womanhood. True women, which was limited to white, mainly upper-class women, were expected to uphold the four virtues of piety, purity, submission, and domesticity. These virtues were directly tied to white women's sexuality and the ability
1: to reproduce. Dora Appel goes into this more in Imagery of Lynching, Black
0: Men, White Women, and the Mob. She says, quote, White women were thus considered naturally superior because of the purity of their whiteness. They are assigned a single, undivided nature she is a vessel for reproduction who remained somehow untouched by sexual drive." End quote. Because white women's value was directly tied to their purity, it became the duty of white men to make sure they were pristine. White women were
1: seen as objects whose only function was to continue the white race. Chloe Angyal wrote in the New Republic, quote, There is an important distinction between white women, a people,
0: and a con- the concept of white womanhood, one that holds that a white woman is the best thing you can be in America after a white man, and that it is the responsibility of white men to protect your virtue at any and all cost. This white supremacist and benevolently sexist ideology depends both on the subjugation of white women by white men and on the subjugation of all people who are not white
1: by white people, including white women. The United States has a
0: long and storied history of the defense of white womanhood being used as a justification for racist acts of violence. In 1921, the Tulsa Race Massacre, called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history, started when a white woman accused a black male of sexual assault. Roughly 300 black people were killed, more than 800 were admitted to area hospitals, and over 6,000 were arrested and detained and more than 9,000 were left homeless after white mobs attacked and destroyed the predominantly black Greenwood district in Tulsa, Oklahoma. At the time, Greenwood was the wealthiest
1: black community in the country and was known as Black Wall Street. This incident became a topic of discussion recently after HBO's The Watchmen made reference to it in one of its first episodes. The 1923 Rosewood Massacre
0: in Central Florida was launched based on the rumor that a white woman had been sexually assaulted by a black man. At least six black people and two white people were killed and the primarily black town of Rosewood was destroyed. In 1931. Nine African-American teenage males, 13 to 20, were falsely accused in Alabama of raping two white women on a train. They would be known as the Scottsboro Boys. The cases included a lynch mob before the suspects had been indicted, all white juries, rushed trials, and disruptive mobs. It is commonly cited as an example of a miscarriage of justice in the United States legal system.
1: In 1949, four young black men were accused of raping a young white woman and
0: assaulting her husband in Lake County, Florida. Two were lynched, and two were convicted by all-white juries and sentenced to long prison terms. Known as the Groveland Four, they were exonerated by a vote of the Florida State Legislature on April 18, 2017. They were pardoned by the Florida Board of Executive Clemency,
1: helmed by newly elected Governor Ron DeSantis on January 11, 2019. In 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till was lynched
0: in Money, Mississippi for allegedly whistling at Carol Bryant, a white woman. Till, who was originally from Chicago and was visiting relatives, was kidnapped, beaten, tortured, and killed by Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. His murderers were later acquitted by an all-white jury. Bryant and Milam, protected from Double Jeopardy, admitted in an interview with Look Magazine that they
1: killed Emmett Till. Carol Bryant later recanted the story of Till's flirtation. The same forces that led to Emmett Till's murder were still alive and well
0: decades later in Spaulding County, Georgia, about 40 miles south of Atlanta.
1: However, it would take 34 years for the truth to come out and justice to be done. On October 9, 1983, 10 year old Christopher Vaughn was out
0: hunting with his father when the two of them came across the body of an African-American male in a grassy ditch next to some power lines. The body was so severely damaged that authorities had trouble identifying.
1: Police asked the public for help with the identification. On October 10th, the 15-paragraph
0: article at the bottom of the front page of the local newspaper Described the victim as a five foot seven male in his twenties. There was a small tattoo on his left hand, and he wore blue jeans and a beige sweater and was barefoot when found. He had a small goatee and a light mustache. Two of his bottom teeth were missing. Investigators combed through
1: missing person reports before identifying the victim asked Timothy Coggins the next day. Twenty-three-year-old Timothy Coggins grew up in Spaulding
0: County with his three brothers and four sisters in the home of his mother and stepfather, Viola and Robert Dorsey. He was known as a fun-loving young man who was a great dancer and possessed the ability to talk to almost anyone. He enjoyed spending time with his siblings and his many cousins. Robert Dorsey, who began raising Tim when he was around seven or eight, instilled a strong work ethic in the children under his roof. He would tell them things like, a man that doesn't work doesn't eat, and you need more than one job. Heather Coggins, who was just six years old when her uncle was killed, said, Granddaddy didn't believe in people lying around doing nothing.
1: Dorsey himself worked as a handyman and drove a school bus. Tim grew up to be quite handy himself. He could often be found earning cash by painting,
0: fixing sewer lines, laying brick, and undertaking carpentry and plumbing projects alongside Dorsey. Tim especially loved his family and took good care of his mothers and sisters. If one of his sisters needed to walk to a friend's house, he'd walk with them, then walk back later to escort them home. Tim would faithfully walk his younger relatives home at night.
1: He always wanted to make sure everyone got home safely, said Tyrone Coggins. But one night, In October of 1983, Tim didn't make it home safely himself. Instead, he was killed in a horribly violent manner. He'd been stabbed about 30 times.
0: He sustained cuts on his back, neck, and stomach and had defensive wounds on his arms. Both his lungs were punctured. His genes were ripped and covered in blood and
1: mud, a result of being tied to the back of a pickup truck and dragged down a dusty country road.
0: Timothy Coggins' death received very little coverage in the local media, and the case of his murder was closed just two weeks after his body was found. No witnesses came forward,
1: and police quickly exhausted their leads. Even though, as would become known much later, one of Coggin's killers would openly brag about the time he killed a black man with impunity. At one point, they, police, were pulled off to
0: investigate a mailbox that had been destroyed. Griffin Judicial Circuit District Attorney Benjamin Coker later said during
1: his closing argument at trial, Timothy Coggins was just another dead black man. Heather Coggins recalled the raw sadness of her uncle's closed casket funeral
0: and the fear the family felt in the wake of his death. The family was even too traumatized to put a marker on his grave. After the funeral, we stayed at an aunt's house,
1: 20 of us, because everyone was so afraid, she said. Space was tight, and the kids slept on the floor at night. She remembers having a nightmare about Uncle Tim, though the details escaped her. You hear stories of what happened, And as a child, you were afraid. You didn't
0: know if people were going to come back. You didn't know who did it.
1: You kind of lived in fear. If I'm completely honest, it lasted all our lives, she said. The family
0: would live with that fear and uncertainty for 34 years until March 2017 when new information led police to reopen the case of Tim's murder, which many thought would never see justice done after so long. The family and officers agreed on details to release to the public. They told the media and the public where Timothy Coggins' body had been found, in a wooded stretch of land that runs for miles between power lines just off Highway 19 in Spalding County. They said Coggins' death had been racially motivated and that he had died from
1: trauma and they said they were looking for more information. Tips began to pour in. In the next few months, investigators
0: from Spalding County and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations interviewed between 60 and 70 people about Coggins' death. In October 2017, Five suspects connected
1: to Coggins' death and cover-up were arrested. Thirty-four years and four days after Coggins' murder, Frankie Gebhardt, 59, and Bill
0: Moore Sr., 58, were charged with murder, felony murder, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, and concealing a body. Two. Of those arrested were law enforcement officers charged with obstruction of justice for actions after the case was reopened that spring. Sandra Bunn, sixty-one, and her son Lamar, thirty-two, were charged with obstruction of justice. They were released after posting bonds of seven hundred six dollars and seventy five cents. Sandra Bunn, according to warrants,
1: advised Gephard on methods to quote, prevent and obstruct evidence relating to Coggins' death. Lamar Bunn advised Gephardt on methods
0: to prevent the collection of DNA, according to warrants. Lamar, who is also Gephardt's nephew, met with former investigators to hinder law enforcement from obtaining information related to the death
1: of Tim Coggins. Lamar Bunn worked for the Milner Police Department and was immediately
0: put on paid leave upon his arrest. Gregory Huffman, 47, was charged with violation of oath of office and obstruction of justice. He was released after posting bonds totaling 35000 according to court records. Huffman is accused of revealing the identity of a confidential informant. Was being used against Gephardt. Huffman, a detention officer with the Spalding County Sheriff's Office, was immediately fired upon his arrest. The break
1: in the case came about because the killers did what they'd been doing for 34 years. Gephardt
0: had been serving time in a Georgia prison on charges of aggravated assault. His brother in law, Moore, was locked up there as well. The two of them made chilling boasts to fellow inmates about how they once killed a black man in cold blood. Gephardt and Moore were known as a couple of bad guys back in the early 1980s in Spalding County. They were laborers at a pulp mill and had reputations as toughs with nasty racist streaks and rap sheets. Gephardt had been charged with aggravated assault several times and had spent time in a Georgia prison.
1: Their notoriety could have contributed to why it took so long for witnesses to come forward.
0: They also had friends in critical positions, like the Buns and Huffman, who may have helped make half the evidence in the Coggins' investigation disappear over the years. When Gephardt was questioned by law enforcement, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution
1: reported, he said he, quote, didn't like being around black people, end quote, and at one point hurled racial epithets and threatened a lawsuit.
0: One of the key witnesses against Gephardt was Christopher Vaughn, who was just 10 years old when he and his father discovered Coggin's body. A few weeks after the murder, Vaughn told investigators he'd heard
1: more, quote, bragging about the fact that he had been the one to stab the victim, quote, and not Gephardt. Vaughn also confessed to hearing Gephardt confess
0: by saying, quote, They had killed the man we found over there, him and Bill Moore. He was in a good mood. Vaughn said Gephardt told him the knife used to kill Coggins was hidden in a well on Gephardt's property. Vaughn told investigators that Coggins was killed because he was involved with Gephardt's girlfriend,
1: a white woman. Or at least the two men believed he was. The two men knew Coggins and Coggins would have known them. District attorney Ben Coker described an alleged motive for the killing. The murder of Timothy Coggins was due to Coggins socializing with a white female, he told a judge. Gephardt and Moore seemed to wear their involvement in the killing like a badge of honor.
0: Another witness told investigators, They were with both suspects at Moore's trailer when the two discussed the murder. They indicated they had, quote, drug a black guy down a dirt road because the black male had been talking with a white woman, end quote. Moore, who was intoxicated, according to the witness, said he, quote, missed the good old
1: days when you could kill a black man for no reason, end quote. He brought up, did we find the body on the power line? I said, yeah. Witness William
0: Sanders told jurors. And he said he and Bill put him there.
1: He said Bill killed him. And he tied chains to his feet and drug him on the power line. They felt like they were doing the right thing. Like they were protecting the white race from
0: black people. Georgia Bureau of Investigation Special Agent Jared Coleman said, according to a video of his testimony, the killers seem to have relied on their reputation, too. Vaughn once said he'd seen Gephardt in an argument with another man years later and Gephardt told the man, I
1: got away with it once. Gephardt also threatened one of his wives that if you keep going on, you're going to wind up like that inward in the ditch. Trial
0: witnesses provided an understanding of how events unfolded in Coggins' murder. Multiple witnesses told investigators they had seen Coggins at the People's Choice Club, a dance club frequented by African Americans in Griffin, Georgia, on the night of October 7th. Witnesses said they believed Mr. Coggins had had a relationship with Mr. Gephardt's white girlfriend. Witnesses told authorities that Gephardt and Moore said they killed Coggins because he had been dancing with a white woman at the club that night. Most of Coggins' friends were white, which may not have set well with people in middle Georgia in the 80s. Jesse Gates said he dropped Coggins off at the club and was alarmed to see three white people outside. On the way over, Coggins had mentioned this Caucasian girl. I said, now Tim, if I told you once, I told you twice, you need to be careful about dating Caucasian women in Griffin. And he said, Mr. Jesse, you're just old-fashioned. Gates testified. Coggins' sister Talisa testified that the last time she saw
1: her brother alive, was when he was leaving the club. She said he danced with a white woman at the club. After leaving
0: the club, witnesses saw Coggins enter a gas station across the street and meet with three white men in a gold Datsun. Gephardt and Moore lured Coggins into a car parked across the street from the dance club, the first step in carrying out the 23-year-old's murder. The pair stabbed Coggins more than 30 times, leaving a patchwork of bloody X's on the young man's skin, prosecutors prosecutor said. Then the two white men chained Coggins to the back of a pickup truck, took him to a desolate part of town, and dragged him across the asphalt until he stopped moving. Defense attorneys attempted to deflect witness testimony by indicating that Coggins' murder may have stemmed from a drug deal gone awry. One witness claimed that Gephardt and Moore tried to sell Coggins cocaine. Coggins tried it, but opted not to buy it. Moore then became enraged and knocked Coggins out and stabbed him. But the amount of overkill in Coggins' murder, more than 30 stab wounds and dragged behind a truck, indicated a more personal motive and perhaps a desire to send a message on the killer's part. The defense also attacked the prosecution's witnesses as scum, indicating that many were involved with drugs and were now in prison. In particular, the defense pounced on the fact that Vaughn was in prison as a convicted child molester. But prosecutors countered that many of those witnesses provided information attributed to Gephardt that only the killer would know. The prosecution also uncovered evidence that bolstered witness testimony. Using a Hydrovac system, investigators excavated a well on Gephardt's property. They recovered a white tank top, shoes, socks, and a thick chain. Coggins was barefoot when his body was found. His shoes, undershirt, and socks were not recovered in the original investigation. A jury found Gephardt guilty on counts of malice murder, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, and concealing the death of another. In the end, it took them just six hours to return the guilty verdict that Coggins' family had waited for for decades. On June 27, 2018, Coggins was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 years for the brutal murder of Timothy Coggins. Heather Coggins spoke at the sentencing. She acknowledged how difficult the trial had been for her family and the Gephards. On August 16, 2018, Moore, described in court by his own attorney as a racist, pleaded guilty in the death of Timothy Coggins. Moore was sentenced to 20 years in prison, followed by 10 years of probation and banishment, the last penalty under Georgia law is a means of forcing an inmate to leave the state after his sentences are complete. Moore will be eligible for parole after serving 80 months of the 20-year sentence. Still, parole board guidelines recommend he serve at least 65% or 13 years.
1: Heather Coggins held Moore's gaze as she addressed him on her family's behalf.
0: I told him that what he did to our family 35 years ago tore our family apart. Our grandmother went to her grave not knowing what had happened to her
1: son. I said, we forgive you. I hope that whoever you pray to, you ask for forgiveness and are forgiven. I also hope that you spend the rest of your natural life behind bars, she said. He just looked at me. When Coggins was slain in 1983, his family was too traumatized
0: to put a headstone on his grave. On December 30, 2017, the family revealed Coggins' headstone at their
1: home church in Zebulon, Georgia, about 50 miles south of Atlanta. Relatives chipped in to buy the stone. Though many who knew Coggins had passed away, dozens of his
0: cousins, nieces, and nephews attended. They were too young to have known Coggins, but they all grew up hearing stories about his death. Many of them wore t-shirts decorated with Coggins' photo
1: and the words, at last, resting in peace. Many also wore ribbons of purple, Coggins' favorite color. This has been a very dark cloud on our
0: family, but today we can see the sun will shine again, said Tyrone Coggins, one of Timothy Coggins' brothers, during a rousing 90-minute memorial service at Fuller's Chapel United Methodist
1: Church. He always wanted to make sure everyone got home safely, said Tyrone Coggins. This is confirmation to the family that, 34 years later, Tim made it home. The Hate Crime Files
0: podcast is researched, produced, written, and hosted by Terrence Heath. That's me. Thanks for listening. And to all my listeners and subscribers, thanks again for your support. I'll be back with another episode on the 15th of the month. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about it, and consider leaving a positive review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, be careful out there and be good to each other.